Welcome to The Sustainable Life. It's Josh Spodek, and I'm here with Arnold Leitner. How are you doing? Very well. Thanks. Nice to be back, Josh. Glad to have you back. And yeah, I was really enjoying our, our conversation, partly because I learned what I hadn't when I thought you were just doing stuff for homes and not realizing what you were doing for the electric grid, if that's not too... I mean, I feel like that's a lot of what you're working on is the electric grid. Yeah, indirectly, right? But indirect uh, impacts can be important at this point, of course, with the number of systems we have, we have installed. It's marginal, but as and if uh, or when, I should say, this type of architecture takes hold, that will be very beneficial for the grid overall. When we met in person, now about a month ago, I think, you were also describing the homes of these people. And we were talking numbers in a way that I wouldn't have been able to before I went off the grid, I, well, started using solar stuff myself. And I mean, part of it, you, you're saying how much power people need as opposed to just energy. And it's a lot. And can you describe some of the homes that you're working with and, and what kind of stuff you see? Yes. So yeah, I can I can speak to that, and also the you know the two issues are a little bit intertwined, which I will uh, separate. Uh, first of all, let's just be uh, aware that as and if we move our life to a more electric home, um, there will be increases in power and in energy. Power because you know people don't want to wait you know two days for the electric car to charge; they want to get it done in a certain amount of time. That means you know there's ten kilowatt that the charger simply needs to run at. So that you know you get charged before you want to go out and do your next trip. Then, of course, the energy that comes with it—that's that's a related but separate issue, like how many kilowatt hours ultimately need to flow into this vehicle. Um, and similar, it's you know for the air conditioning or the heat pumps or the induction stove, right? It takes a certain amount of kilowatt hours to turn you know uncooked rice into a fine dish. But then at the same time, for certain parts of of the house that are high power now, or, or, or typically, uh, those are those related to motors. Uh, and motor, motors are found in air conditioners, heat pumps, water wells, uh, and the like. And, and they have uh, typically uh, a very high uh, amount of power when they turn on. It's referred to as the inrush current. Um, think about it this way. These motors are electromagnetic motors, and they have to establish the electric and magnetic fields inside first. So those fields need to be built up first, you know, with some currents. And so that's what happens initially. And once they're built and the motor is normally operating, then, you know, the power consumption is that of the work done by the device, like how much water it's pumping or how much air conditioning it's doing. Um, but a big change would happen to these initial currents which or power demands, that's kind of proportional, if we can add something to it, which is called the variable speed drive. Um, and that's something that slow, slowly starts up these motors and therefore avoids these inrush currents. So why is this important to recognize? Um, if you add up the nameplate powered needs of all the devices in the home that are now coming or there, and you add you know, an overhead to it, which is like what electricians essentially do, you know, to account for these inrush currents or these high start, uh, starting loads, you end up with very high um, demand. You end up going from the typical home, which is 100, typically 200 uh, ampere, which reflects um, 24 or rather 48 kilowatt. Um, you end up with um, homes that demand 400, 600 ampere. The truth is they actually don't really ever do that because it's a good old, good old electrician coming in, doing his little math on his little you know check uh, checklist, and comes up with these very high ratings. 
And then the utility in the past, of course, has simply delivered this. This is part of the of the deal, right? That you utilities deliver this high power. Uh, but as you get smarter, realizing that not loads are concurrent, and as you're adding variable speed drives, you can actually reduce these peak loads. You cannot reduce the overall energy consumption, right? That we now need with the all electric home, but you can work on those peaks. But at this point, uh, you know, our customers are just simply proceeding with whatever appliances and ideas they have for the home. And go over to the electrician and they give them these loads and these are the loads we have to meet. So what I'm trying to suggest is that ultimately in the midterm, we'll be able to work with variable speed drives and more awareness with electricians to bring these peak loads down uh, and the requirements you know, of the electric code that you know, demand them. But right now, that's that's what we're facing. So we're looking at homes that electrify and that suddenly go from 200 ampere to 400, even 600 ampere. Can you remind me what you told me when we were in person about what kind of kilowatt hours they had storage and what kind of power they were yeah. getting? Yes. Because because when you mentioned the car, 10 kilowatts for the vehicle, I'm like, my battery here maxes out at 600 watts. Yes. Yes. Well, you won't be able to drive with it to New York, no. Yeah, no. <laughs> but I, I, I think I might be as happy as they are and doing as much good for the world. Okay, so that's that's a very important uh, point and, and question to ask ourselves. How much energy do you need to be happy, right? How much energy do you need in your life? Well, for, before going into that more philosophical thing, what what kind of what are you giving to these homes? What do they want? Oh yeah, so apologies. Yes, so these homes um, have energy requirements that are usually much lower than what you expect based on their power, because many of these no loads are very um, peaky, right? So they come in briefly and then go away. Uh, so the power seems appears higher uh, than the energy consumption that comes with it. Uh, maybe I'm too convoluted here. Let's just jump to it. These homes consume uh, between 40 to 60,000 uh, kilowatt hours a year. And they have energy demands in the 100, power demands, I should say, in the 100 kilowatt range. While, you know- 100 kilowatts. Yes, yes. Um, while my home here, you know, where I live, you know, we have about 10, 15,000 kilowatt hours a year. And, you know, I don't think you consume, you draw more power than maybe 12 or 10 ever, uh, because we have a hot tub, which we all run, by the way, Josh, for, with solar energy. So um, I feel okay about that part. Uh-huh. So, yeah, um, you look at homes that are basically twice the size of a regular home. So what was that per day in, in uh, kilowatt hours? Okay, I usually don't think in those terms uh, because we look at um, you look at per year per year, but you know it's easy enough to do. I have a calculator here. I'm notoriously bad at arithmetic. Me, me too. Yeah. So let's <laughs> take forty thousand kilowatt hours, which is a pretty good load. It's not in, insane, and divided by three hundred and sixty-five, uh, so that comes up to about a hundred uh, kilowatt hours uh, a day. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. A hundred kilowatt hours per day. Yeah. And. So I'm using like half a kilowatt hour per day. So like using yeah. 200 times more. Yeah, yeah. So, well, take 100 and divide it by 24, right? Uh, which is your um, hours in a day. So that's a loads about four kilowatt constant loads. Uh, yeah, we, we see those uh, all the time. Yeah. Wow. Um, you know, it goes up and down, and that goes down, but they draw more during the, day, during the day. But we have seen houses that have pools and heat pumps or air conditioning systems in that case when the pool is running. That draw like six, five, six kilowatt continuously for hours at a time. Do they have an interest? Do they talk about lowering their consumption? 
Uh, well, typically not. And that's, you know, actually, there was a wonderful New York Times article on this, uh, which you could reference. Uh, as people get solar systems, their energy consumption typically goes up <laughs> because uh, they feel less guilty and they feel like can splurge because, you know, the energy is is presumably clean. So um, do they think about getting a smaller system? I mean, because the system, I guess they're not thinking about the materials going into it and that they have to replace it every, I don't know, 15, 20 years. Yeah. So this, you know, this goes to the question, the little philosophical one we have to defer, but let's just be a little simpler to guard to start with. The question of um, can you achieve our environmental goals by people constraining, restraining, you know, their their consumption? And I think the average observation or the the typical opinion is that it's not going to work. Um, you know, the scarcity. Wait, to do only that? To, to, to only reduce and do nothing else? Uh, no, I, we feel, no, 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 of course, do other things. But we okay. feel that asking people to drive less, take the German, uh, Germany, for example. Um, you know, the, when I was a kid in Germany, the goal was to achieve 100 uh, kilometers an hour. It's about 60 something miles per hour on the interstate instead of the unlimited speed, which no one really goes with. But we go at like 130 kilometers an hour, so 30. 30% more or 50% 150. And that would significantly reduce fuel consumption. And that never made it anywhere, right? Despite the fact that Germany is pretty progressive because people just want to get home quickly and they want to go slow. So, you know, constraining yourself or restraining yourself, or, you know, reducing your needs don't seem to work. So the alternative is give them a, a Tesla goes, you know, 200 miles per hour and that maybe solves the problem. Because the problem was, of course, that with speed, um, the Wind resistance goes up, I think it's by the square or even the cube. So, uh, you know, the faster you go, the more consumption you have per mile. And that was the idea of lowering the speed limit. And that never got any traction, even in Germany. Well, that's if you have a system. I mean, these are on, if you have a road that's built for unlimited speed, it's going to be, it's going to feel uncomfortable to drive slower than that. But the, if we build the system, I mean, if you, I think of it more in the terms of U.S. If you build highways into cities, people are going to want to live at the ends of the highways. Yeah. And then they're going to say that they have – they're going to say, I have no alternative but to drive. Yes. But had we not built those roads, they wouldn't have lived out there. Yeah. If we lived in cities where everything was a 15-minute walk, yeah, you wouldn't want to drive 100 miles per hour to go something that's a 10-minute walk away. That's correct. And I think structurally, um, we have gotten ourselves in the corner here. I apologize. In, in the United States – in that we know we have a suburban sprawl, and uh, we even without that, uh, we have a, a very underdeveloped um, uh, public transportation infrastructure. I think that's almost as well known as uh, the American way. Um, yeah, to solve that problem would require at this point trillions of dollars investing into our infrastructure, and that ultimately is and probably where we should go and need to go. But in the in the near term. Uh, people try to solve the problem on the edge, right? Within their home, uh, where they live with electric vehicles or other means. Well, I think that the, I mean, if we don't do change the infrastructure, we're sunk. I mean, people, as long as the roads are there, people are going to drive on them. Yes. And if we keep building more and more, they're going to keep driving. You know, one of the things when I talk about not flying one of the first reactions for from virtually everyone is, but my family. My family lives an ocean away or something like that. And 
I didn't think about it this way for a while. And I actually read someone else wrote it. And I don't know if there's research on this, but it seems that people, it's not that they want to live with their parents. They want to live near their parents so that they can reach them several, like several times a year, but not so close that their parents can drop in on them anytime. And that means flying distance away if they're airplanes. If there aren't airplanes, they will still live far enough away that they can not drop in any moment, but close enough that they can visit them on holidays. It'll just be train distance away or biking distance away. So if we took away airplanes, it's not, I mean, there are people now who live flying distance from home and that's a different problem. It's a short-term problem that if that some people today will find themselves living far from their parents, but future generations will all live closer to their parents as we did for all of human history. It's not that they, we need airplanes to visit family. We need airplanes to visit family if we have airplanes that cause us to live flying distance away. Yeah. I think that applies to most infrastructure or at least a lot of it. Yeah. So let me, uh, let me just say um, that, you know, what I do with you, Sola and what I, you know, the, the, the big niche, not the niche, the, the, giant, the giant swath I've cut out my, for myself to work on is only part of, of what we need to think about. And that, and I, I can speak to that more. And I think it's a little more slightly easier to solve problem than the transportation and the, and, and the distance problem for our life because um, we can solve some of these things pretty efficiently locally while the things you're talking about require infrastructure changes and changes also in behavioral thinking. Yeah, and this is a lot of what I wanted to talk to you is you have the background in having done it in running companies in physics yeah. and engineering. Mm -hmm. And, oh, man, I crave a conversation like this. Yeah. So let me just uh, briefly uh, let me to digress in transportation because I've thought quite a bit about it, um, although it's not my expertise. So if you ever go into the, you know, people always talk how AI has changed the world and, and, and what not the computer has and before that, you know, it's really air conditioning because it opened up the desert southwest and other parts of the world for thinking and working. But, you know, I, I sometimes think that people underestimate or not really highlight, uh, you know, air transportation. I mean, the, the jet is an, an, it's a time traveling machine, right? And we can get on it and 12 hours later, I step out in Singapore and I feel pretty good, right? Uh, I don't feel like I just, you know, traveled 12,000 whatever miles. Um, that's made distances so easy to cover. And as long as people have access to it, they will access it and use it. Now, it comes with an incredible um, impact, right? You go into a cockpit of a, of a Dreamliner. It's the marvel of engineering. It's it's a pinnacle of human achievement in terms of complexity and efficiency. And it's beautiful. I admire it. I love it as an engineer. But at the same time, you know, when we landed on one trip to Minneapolis, the, the captain was probably, I thought, probably telling, oh, we just arrived in Minneapolis. We just burned 4,500 gallon of jet fuel, right? And that wasn't funny, you know. He thought he thought it was interesting a tidbit for the audience, for the people on board. It was terrible news, right? So you have these things that are really positive in, in one aspect and incredible in terms of the achievement, but on the other side, they have these they have this impact that's just un, unacceptable and unsustainable, right? So with transportation, you know, um, this you know, the, I think the old saying applies. You know, a trend that cannot continue will end, and it will end, and it will end hard because. It's simply not possible to continue doing what we're doing. The question is, when does a trend happen? And are there other things we need to work on first or work on uh, in, in between? So going back to your question about transportation system, 
there is a lot of discussion about electric vehicles, um, you know, consuming batteries. In a way, think about it. The electrification is being looked down on saying, well, the batteries have as much of an impact as burning gas, so we may as well continue with that and don't use electricity. But that miss a very important point. If we were to electrify all of our rail and electrify all of our cars, uh, sorry, I apologize, all of our trucks uh, with some batteries, there's no reason there couldn't be overhead lines on free rice that trucks connect to, just like the buses do here in San Francisco. It's a tried and true technology. We could, you know, we're not, we're not talking about much highway miles to get probably 90 or 58% of all the food consumption off the air, right? Um, and there's no battery involved. You know, but at the same time, because of the enormous amount of um, units on the street and the averaging of it, we actually have a virtual battery, just like Uber creates a virtual, always be available taxi driver. We could do the same for electricity. So we could create an all-electric infrastructure that moves 90% of all of us, or at least of goods, with no battery, period, right? So this whole argument is fallacy, right? So... And then really, you know, the battery-powered car is actually a failure of the electric infrastructure, right? Why would you schlep a battery, all the energy with you underneath your car, underneath your seat, from San Francisco to Tahoe, when indeed you need to be traveling that with, uh, you know, with a drive-by wire, if you want to call it, whether it's on a train or otherwise. And no energy storage required, no energy, you know, required at all to uh, build uh, the batteries. You know, it's just a small little motor and, a, and, a, and, a, and something that connects an overhead line. Now, I'm not saying this is plausible for um, individual cars, but certainly for trucks, uh, as we tried before, uh, and it just you know, hasn't gotten the scale. But for the individual, it goes back to what you said. You know, if we had, had not only trains that are well developed and you know, and, and you know, we had a dense network, but if they all moved on electricity, there would be no battery in there, uh, and then people would be you know be able to travel most distances, most places, like myself on the train uh, to work. But but absent of that. Not only are you stuck with streets and cars, you're also stuck with batteries, right? If you want to electrify. So yeah, um, I think we can get very far away, but you know, structurally we need to we need to make changes. So you know, the electric car is actually not the greatest of all solutions, right? We need to electrify further, but try to do that without batteries. I've read about the by wire systems. My understanding was that they could only work in cities and between cities, they wouldn't work very well. And they're delicate if they're not, if they don't have dense. But I, I'm not an expert on this either. Oh, oh no, no, and this cannot be true. Not that, that you misinformed, but whoever wrote this person clearly thinking, I mean, the German railroad travels at, or, you know, the TGV goes at fourth. Oh, railroad, yeah. So, yeah. But, but for cars and trucks. Oh, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. I mean, what's, what, you know, why can you not have on the, on the top of the truck, you have a similar kind of device that reaches up and connects to the, uh, to the power line and drives off. I mean, every bus in San Francisco has it. Um, I, I think these are trivial problems to solve. I don't think there's a problem there. If there is one, it's trivial to solve. And then, you know, when, when you get to the end of the freeway, you, you retract it and you use your battery to, you know, go to the loading dock and, and do your work, right? But you don't need a 150 kilowatt hour battery for that. You could do that with a, you know, with a small battery, even hauling, you know, a big, uh, big trailer. That's the point, right? Uh, but that's more a structural answer, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be the way I described it. It could be, you know, just all on trains. Um, but this, this trade off between gasoline and batteries. Uh, is not one that exists. You know, it's not like, oh, well, if we use batteries, we may as well burn gas because look at the resource extraction. We don't need to do most of the resource extraction, even if you move to the all-electric life. 
even for transportation. So let's say we don't need batteries for transportation. Although, it, so the car, I guess we still have some. Oh, we will. I mean, in America. Yeah, we will, of course. Well, I think that the, um, in, in America, that we have this view of a car equaling freedom. I think people are kind of getting that that isn't around anymore because I think people spend more time in traffic than they do driving out in the open road. But I think that that would go away if we have all these wires everywhere. I guess we have. The, we'd need batteries for the freedom to get off of where the wires were, but at least we could go to the popular places with the wires. Yeah, and, and certainly go to work. I mean, I don't consider my car to be freeing myself. I find it pretty constraining <clears throat> because I need to drive it and my time is wasted. But overall, I think this is a discussion, Josh, that um, is a bit outside of where I spent my time because I feel that um, this is such, this is a generation-long discussion that needs to happen or transformation. I don't see any any angle right now or any uh, interest to really take this on, you know. Uh, not even the, in, the, in the suburban environment even, or urban environment. I mean, case in point is the New York City subway, right? As much as being used and, you know, and repeated in songs and literature and, and Steve Ocopea laughs about it on, on The Tonight Show, whatever it's called, um, it's a disaster. It's a technological, uh, you know, uh, relic. I mean, if you go to the subway in Madrid or Singapore, I mean, these are these, these are, in, 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 these are two different two different ideas, right? And how you can move people around in terms of quality of transportation, and we don't even get that act together, right? And that's like a super high density environment um, where we, you know, mostly have right of ways already. So yeah, I don't I don't know uh, that this discussion is even on anyone's mind. Currently, the one that you tried to foster here in this in this conversation of trying to electrify our transportation, get people out of cars. I don't see that even being you know under national consciousness in any form. I maybe yeah, I'm not I, this, maybe I'm not listening to the right podcasts, and I and I you know I appreciate what all the things you're doing and saying and thinking, but I don't see that right now at all. You know, I don't see any interest in. Um... In the United States, I don't. I see virtually zero interest in trying to make communities that don't rely on automobiles. Even though where they exist, they seem to be people love it. I guess have I talked about the not just bikes video series? No, I'm not, I'm not familiar with that, or you haven't mentioned it yet. So I, I hope listeners haven't heard me talk about it too much. But he's the guy who does it has been a guest on this podcast, and. It's this guy who grew up in Canada in a regular North American city and over the course of his life lived in a lot of different places and ended up in Amsterdam and found himself asking himself, why do I like Dutch cities so much? At first he thought it was because it was bike friendly because I think everyone identifies Amsterdam as being a super bike friendly city. And he, I believe, like I, I didn't know until him, I thought that Amsterdam was just a, it was a medieval city that happened to lend itself to bikes more than cars. What I didn't know was that it was overrun with cars in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Mm-hmm. And there was a proposal to build these superhighways that would go through and raise the middle of the city and, and do to Amsterdam what happened to LA or Houston, which were once walkable cities yeah. or smaller towns. And the citizens got in the street and blocked this from happening. And then over the course of decades and decades, you know, not overnight, but through deliberate conscious efforts with mistakes made along the way – they deliberately made the city more and more bike friendly, or not just bike friendly, but not reliant on cars. Yeah. 
And so cars do exist there and they do drive around there, but much, much less. And most people, given the choice between moving around in, I think, any Dutch city by foot or bike or tram versus by car, no one will ever, very rarely will people pick the car. I mean, for deliveries, they'll have trucks, but even those are smaller trucks. And as a result, everything's really close and convenient and the amount of pollution is much less. And so his series is, he's got dozens. I don't, I don't know if he's got a hundred videos there yet, but they're, I mean, they're really fascinating. He's got a kind of dry, wry sense of humor. So they're enjoyable to watch. And, you know, millions of views, even though I don't know anyone who wakes up in the morning thinking to themselves, I'm going to go watch a video on urban planning. But the more I watch them, the more I, I, I wish that what the Dutch did over the past several decades, that something like that would happen here. And I would much prefer a city that didn't require, I mean, I'd much prefer living in a city where I wouldn't even think of driving a car to one in which there were catenaries all over the place. And there's still the whole issue to me of isolating, isolation and distance and other sorts of pollution besides the power systems. So that's what, that's what I really want. And, and that's talking about cars, but also likewise with airplanes or, I mean, container ships. I often ask people, and no one knows this as far as I know, but I ask people kind of for fun, what fraction of cargo on a container ship do you think within a year of its final delivery is it going to be in a landfill? And most people guess it's pretty high. I would assume so because a lot of this consumer goods, lots of this food as well. So is there an answer uh, that you have? Uh, no, I, I don't know the answer. Yeah. And I mean, I do know that a, a high percentage of stuff bought by Americans within one year is in landfills. Like jeans get worn something like seven times before th they're thrown away. Uh, and to make the jeans, first the cotton gets shipped one place to be treated, another place to be made into material, another place to be dyed, another place to be this, to be cut, another place. So one pair of jeans may have made several ships across oceans before it was jeans to be bought. And then after it's used, it takes a couple of container ships or truck trips to end up in, you know, Ghana or wherever it gets dumped. Yeah. So I think there's a lot, and as long as the container, I think a lot of people figure, well, as long as the container ship is going, it's pretty cheap to just put something in a container and stick it on the ship. Yeah. But if we didn't get all that stuff in the first place, we, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be like a lot of people, they do this calculation. It's like, as long as the ship is there, it's cheap. It doesn't use that much more energy. Well, yeah, but what if the container ship wasn't going? So that's what I, that's what I think of. It's not like what technology, can we make it a nuclear powered container ship? So much as can we not need the container ships? Yeah, no, um, and this is, relates also to airplane travel. I mean, the, this, this thinking exists. And even among people who should know better, um, said, well, you know, the plane is already flying anyway. It's already scheduled by United Airlines last year. So if I'm on it or not, what difference does it make? Well, the difference is if you're not on it, they actually may even cancel the flight if the flight is completely empty, right? Um, or, them, or if it's one third full, they might reroute people. And the next year, they won't schedule the flight anymore. Uh, so it does make a difference whether you use uh, you know, an asset uh, or not, even if it's already there, to your point of the container ship, right? Um, but overall, you know, what, what you're going after is something that I practice, and this is why I think to some degree people respect me also in the leadership in the industry, but, but the things I do because I do personally also what I say. So, you know, I for myself uh, actually been a proud owner, and this is a mystery to me of a T-shirt I bought in the American Embassy 
in the Czech, uh, Czechoslovakia, the country does no longer exist, in 1987. And this T-shirt I've worn continuously, what marvels me is it doesn't even have a single hole. Now, I don't put anything in the dryer, but it's been worn a lot. Uh, you know, the Czech, Czechoslovakian uh, crest has long fallen off. The American embassy thing has fallen off. Um, so it turns out this must be some, I've discussed it with a textile expert, because this, this is almost uh, freaky. Uh, it must be some long-spun Arabian, uh, uh, Egyptian cotton. Uh, I think that's what we have come to conclusion. It just is indestructible. Um, just count the decades back. Now, I don't recommend everyone keeps a T-shirt that long or must keep it. But the point is, um, I don't put anything in the dryer and I gently wear things. And when I work on a garden, I immediately change my clothing. I, you know, I, I kind of get a little terror to, uh, disappointed when I see Patagonia, for example, the clothing company, show people where they find Patagonia down jacket, uh, grinding down a surfboard or working, you know, on wood or, you know, in the garden. Like, I would never wear my you know, high-performance Patagonia, you know, uh, uh, down jacket for something like this. I'll wear some, any kind of fleece, any anything I find, right? Because who cares if that thing gets dirty or cut up or, or torn by the bushes? So, you know, I, I separate my clothing. I, I treat everything gently. And, I, you know, I, I, my stuff lasts forever, which is why I say I can buy, you know, uh, Patagucci, as sometimes Patagonia was referred to, because the cost impact to me is negligible because, you know, the average cent per day of wearing these pants is like 0.001 because I have one pair and lasts me 15 years, right? So I can buy whatever I want in terms of clothing because it has no cost impact because I treat everything so gently. So, but, you know, those things, um, and also with everything in the house, you're not using resources, trying to live small. Some of this I acquired from Expedition Canoeing that I did when I, when I, was, when I was younger Um because you're very resource constrained if you go out for three or four weeks in, in the Canadian wilderness. There's only that much you can bring. The food needs to last. And so that kind of mindset of being on a finite planet, basically, that you only have that many things and they have to get you through everything. You want to arrive with comfort has kind of shaped, I think, a little bit my, my mind around that. So I view the entire world as like this limited canoe trip where only that much things fit in your boat, right? And that's what you have to live and work with. And 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 I find access almost um, uh, yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't enjoy it. That's something that makes me uncomfortable, and I see waste of any sort. What you were talking about there is integrity and credibility attained through living by your values, and I think these are common values. It's not like you are the only one who wants to live and let live, who wants to leave it better than you found it, who wants to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I'm not sure. I, I, I presume these are values that, that you uh, espouse. And I think a lot of people used to and I think want to. And I think that's, to me, more than technology, more than legislation, integrity and credibility are missing from the people speaking about solutions and ideas more than anything else. Right. But then it's like, why me? Right. It's, it, you know, that jet plane I was talking about, it sits there. It's being cleaned at the tarmac in San Francisco. And all I have to do is click on that website, pay with PayPal and efficiently whatever pay with. And I'm on this plane and I have the same benefit and trip to Tahiti that everyone else has. And, and no one will fault me for it because everyone, it's like the Garden Eden. I'm the apple of Garden Eden. It's a beautiful image, right? No one can, everyone wants to take a bite of that apple. It's just so beautiful, right? And that's the temptation. That's also the natural desire of, of men. And in a way, I don't fault us entirely for it because, quite frankly, some of the pollution we've done to this planet, some of the damage we have done to this planet, I'm very proud of and very happy that we did because without, without it, we would have never had 
a laboratory at the University of Colorado Boulder that I could do superconducting research on. They would have never put the Webb telescope into space. So, that, you know, to some degree, I'm glad that we had this ambition and this drive and this and didn't care because it got us to some some things that I think are extraordinary, like, you know, the particle accelerator and, and CERN or, you know, or some or many of the achievements we have done. The point is now, okay, that was great, but, you know, everything has its limits and and accepting those and finding beauty in them and, and living with them. And and basically going back to this 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 quote that's very common, like you know, a trend that can you cannot continue will end. It it doesn't matter how cool the web telescope is. We can't blow a hundred thousand of those at the sky. It means that we're burning up here on Earth. So at some point, it's as much a reality as you know. A black hole or a telescope. You know what I mean? It's 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 just it's not it's something you can ignore. It's not like a fume that evaporates, right? I think that's the problem people still have. You know, to recognize that it's it's a party pooper, right? I mean, CO two is a party pooper in a, in a way, and the party is awesome. We built an amazing party, and and what are we going to do now? Yeah, it's it's an awesome party from the perspective of someone in this culture. The more that I step outside of this culture, and look, I'm living in Manhattan. I'm yes. hardly living sustainably, but I'm taking steps in that direction. I can see where it leads, and it doesn't lead to deprivation sacrifice as I thought it would. And to use the party analogy, when I was out partying in my younger days, every now and then there'd be someone who left early because they had kids or because they had a dog they had to walk. And I'd think from my perspective, oh, you're leaving a great party. From their perspective – they're leaving to something better. They're not leaving the party. They're going to their child. Yeah. And in my experience, the experience of taking into account other people who are affected by my actions and in today's world where everything is interconnected, you know, a, a flood in a chip factory in Taiwan sends uh, grain prices in North America through the roof. Like it's so connected that yeah. shouldn't be, it wouldn't, you wouldn't think it would be connected. Yeah. And therefore, if I choose to take into account everyone and everything that I do, that to me feel I believe that feels to me like they felt when they left the party to go to take care of their kid. Yes. Like it's I that love is greater than the fleeting joy, the fleeting pleasure. I, I agree with that. I wholeheartedly this is why I try to live my life this way, right? If if my friends, you know, they now are driving with the electric vehicle to the family in Tucson. Exactly, exactly Phoenix example. Uh, so Tucson, I think. No, Phoenix. Example of your of your kind family in, in Phoenix. They live here in the Bay Area. And and they would uh, you know fly there for Thanksgiving and you know and, and, and this and that, drop the kids off for two weeks. And I and I made a point, they're very progressive uh, friends, uh, and uh, and now they have changed, right? Um in part hopefully because of their own awareness, but maybe it's a little bit what I've said and done because we drove there with the electric vehicle. And again, I wouldn't even want to use the battery for that, right? That should be happening on a, an electric uh, line. But I, I said to them, you know, okay, you flew to Phoenix. I told you, you know, this is bad. Just think about it. You just killed four kids in Bangladesh. Okay. How would you feel if you could completely connected those dots? And they would say, oh, well, you know, I was just one person. But yeah, but what if I could show you that that CO2 mission was just what push that flood over the edge and cause that little thing to crash that drowned those four kids in Bangladesh. And that's not hypothetical. That's exactly what's happening, right? But to take that responsibility and encompass the entire plant in that, um, you know, is actually what we sadly must do because we're no longer isolated. We're no longer living in an equilibrium of my village. 
uh, there never has been an equilibrium, but it, you know, perceived to be one. I remember the, the Huns would come through and then the Romans. So, you know, you were never like safe and sound in a little German village either. But regardless, um, you know, a lot has changed and we have to take everything to account just like you described it. So the question is, it can become paralyzing. Like, you know, don't tell me this. I don't want to think about this is too big. This is just, you know, I, you know, like now I can't do anything. What do you want me to do? Like, be like Josh, sit at home, you know, <laughs> use my bloody. Or like, screw you, I'm just going to do it anyway. And, you know, I cannot take responsibility for everything. The government must solve this problem. We need to collectively solve this problem. Uh, and I can't do anything about it. And then my answer to this is always, um, you know, it's a little bit like, you know, in life with your financials. You have to save some and spend some, right? You you know, it's. I was just listening to Jimmy Wales' uh, the podcast uh, with Lex Friedman about Wikipedia, where every decision they have to make is still you know, unique. It's not like one fits all. So with everything in your life, it's a complicated uh, discussion you need to make about, okay, what am I going to do? Spend myself, what I'm going to save that someone else gets no resources. And sadly, it's it, not sadly, that's the reality of the world, right? This is what you're born into. Uh, this is a complex planet. It's There's no easy answer. And and the best I think you can do is people is to strive, to strive and really do the best they can, uh, find a balance, Act with love for themselves, because otherwise nothing happens if you don't love yourself, and with love for others and care for others. And every day in every decision, you have to ask yourself, do I need this? What impact does it have? Can it drive you, can it drive you crazy? You can't go to Trader Joe's and ask yourself every five minutes. You know, I can't, you know, you can't be like a, you know, like open the wrapper and read the ingredients every single time, right? That doesn't work either. But you need to start because it drives you crazy. You have no joy in life, right? It's your one life you have to live. I mean, you can't just, you know, be reading uh, ingredient wrappers all day long and decide if you can buy or not buy it. But start out with some framework. Start out with the big stuff, right? And work on it and work it down. For example, say, I'm going to do one eight-hour flight a year, back and forth. That's 16 hours of flight time. That's all I have in a year. I need to allocate this. This could be two trips or four trips to Phoenix. Or it could be one trip to Germany. Just start somewhere based on your awareness. And then within that framework, live your life and fully maximize it. And then, of course, do with the other things. But it's going to be hard. And truly, Josh, the only time it will, the trend will stop when there's a price attached to it, right? Where the resource constraint simply costs the price and I cannot afford it. For my friends from Phoenix, if that flight would have been $10,000 per kit, they would have not gone for Thanksgiving. I guarantee you that. And so, you know, the dilemma is ultimately one that these things are not priced in. Now, that gets you to an entire a different social justice question, but, you know, well, then only very, very few people can travel. And, and you know, what about this thing in Bangladesh? But you know what? Um, we need to level the playing field, make the world more even. I think we all want to do that in, in a way. So we all depend on others contributing to it. So therefore, everyone should share to some degree. I'm a big defender of, of the idea of personal property and deeds and capitalism, but I also believe in what we call the, the social marketplace in, 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 in German, so that we also share so there will be inequality. Some, some people will never be able to fly somewhere. Uh, but that's okay. I mean, that, that's nothing wrong with the system there. But, um, you know, we need to start using pricing to stop our behavior. And that's only possible once we really pay for the cost of our impact. Or the impact must be paid, you know, because it's just there now and you have to pay for it because there's no way around it anymore. You know, like fire suppression systems, right? Now, people in California will be presumably soon paying $50,000 for fire suppression systems. Because, you know, they blew the CO2 in the air and they can't get fire insurance and not about to burn down. And the only way to defend them is a $50,000 used solar fire suppression system. 
There you have it. Now you're paying it. Couldn't make you pay $50,000 to Greenpeace for 30, 35 years. But now that your house is about to burn down, you, you suddenly find the $50,000. And so we need, you know, we need to kind of, sadly, we'll have to, we'll have to, I believe, many places get to this point of view, the point of uh, decision, unless we surprise ourselves, which I would like to know that we're better than that and we stop earlier and, you know, we, we don't have to get to this point. Because we simply put rules and regulations in place, which are awesome, okay? Which are the best thing mankind that ever has ever invented to rein in spending and consumptions to have simple rules. You know, we can't do certain things. And I hope we can get there before pricing is the only way to slow down and, t- and stop people from destroying the planet. When you say pricing is the only thing, I mean, we don't, we don't put a price on child labor. We don't put a price on murder. I'm not trying to equate, by the way, child labor and pollution or yeah. murder and pollution. I'm just saying that we don't put a price on something. We, some things are qualitatively treated differently. And you're also describing like flying. I'm hearing, and maybe you're not saying this, that flying is like a good thing and maybe we have to limit it, but it's it's deprivation and sacrifice not to do it. But we, I mean, at one point going up in hot air balloon was amazing. Yeah. And flying wasn't conceived of. Now flying makes going up in a hot air balloon not worth any I, I doubt many listeners have gone up in a hot air balloon, despite it once having been the most amazing thing. So as long as some people are flying, I think there's a social compulsion for others to fly. But if not ever if no one was flying, I don't think people people could get the joy that they get from flying from other ways. And Yeah. Um I, I don't know that, and I don't think I want to. Uh, I think it's not worth my effort uh, to try to tackle on, you know, ch- to tackle the problem this way. The really what I meant to say about flying is, come on, Josh, it's a freaking amazing. It's almost like time travel. <laughs> I get in this little aluminum tube at the airport in San Francisco. I close a little oval, uh, you know, oval shaped window. They serve me some food. I listen to some rattling noise, uh, you know, some static noise for twelve hours, and I get out and I'm in Singapore. I mean, that's pretty amazing, yeah. And, and, and also the possibility that it would give to a person like right now I'm sitting in, you know, Minneapolis and freezing my little booty off, let's say at minus 20 Fahrenheit and, and eight hours later, 12 hours later or 15 hours later, probably in, I'm in Tahiti, right? And I step out and my life just got transformed emotionally from feeling depressed and cold to, you know, I can't take my clothing off fast enough and run to the beach. That's what I meant. It's, it's an amazing, it's an amazing, uh, tool that mankind had. But yeah, I think everything. If you only look at the benefits and, and and neglect the costs, I mean, imagine smoking where I get the pleasure and you get cancer. Yeah, I'm gonna like that's great if I don't care if I don't think about you. Right, but that's the point I'm trying to make. Right, it's that you know, God, you know, why see you to the party pooper? Because what a beautiful party would this be to fly everywhere. Um, so if we change culture, that to me, if we have a culture where stewardship is higher up than look, I can afford it. That's the cost. Even if there's a carbon, even if there's a price attached to make it higher, if someone can afford it, end of story. And to me, democracy means that people, like maybe we want to, I usually think about this in terms of uh, interplanetary travel. Maybe I'm not into going to Mars right now and I don't see it as a solution as I don't understand how people see it as a solution to our problems on Earth. But maybe someday we do want to go to Mars and maybe an asteroid will be headed toward Earth. If we choose to do that, I mean, it's heavily polluting. I don't think that, I'm fine with doing it if it's a democratically, if through some sort of democratic process, the people affected by it get a, get a say in it. But if it's only a couple people and 
Like if I get polluted by it and I don't, and I have no say in it, I, I don't, that's not democracy to me. That's not a free market to me. Yeah. So it, I, I also am a fan of free markets and democracy, but I don't see that if, as long as we pollute and I can unilaterally choose to pollute and you have to suck it down, whether you like it or not, I can't see that being a free market and I can't see that being democracy. No, I think I'm very clear on that. That I, I was just referring to the, to the technical miracle, the emotional miracle. And then, of course, the question is, you know, at, what, at whose cost and at what cost, uh, you know, am I consuming this? And in terms of air travel, right, not only do people have to listen to the jet noise uh, underneath the, you know, underneath the flight path, but there's also the air pollution and, and all those things that come with it. And I think, you know, you need to take, I think that would be wonderful. If it, that's where we, you know, societies can aspire to, you know, things that they collectively do, collectively think about uh, in a form, you know, any religion basically has accomplished that, right, by saying that we don't do certain things. I mean, look at this, you know, uh, in the Jewish culture, you don't eat pork or in the Muslim culture. I believe I'm right about that. Uh, how, you know, okay, now you may not decide that that's an important thing to carve out, but they were able to carve it out because there's no penalty in, in slaughtering a pig, really, right? And it was different from a goat. Um, but, you know, so it is possible, right? Uh, in an example of religions and, and, and taboos, uh, it's possible, right? And it's, and it can be very strongly re reinforcing in, inside of a, um, specifically religious community. As that, as an analogy, are we able to develop simple taboos, if you call it, or, or norms? Uh, that you just don't do certain things, right? And some of this is already emerging, but right? emerging. I'm not saying it's happening. People feel, you know, bad about, you know, the, you know, showing their wealth too much or or using it too much or an advantage, like flying everywhere. People try to cut back with, uh, pretend to cut back with uh, private air travel. In fact, it's gone up in terms of numbers. Um, yeah, I think uh, that's a, something we. That's what a point I was trying to make. That's something we could and should do. Uh, before price becomes the only way to stop it, right? Yeah. I think a lot of people reach the state. I think a lot of people don't really think about too much about it. They try to suppress and deny their effects on wildlife and people around them and people far away from them and wildlife far away from them. Yes. And then some people think a bit more and they want to do something. And eventually it seems like if you think about it enough and you act enough, you eventually realize that you have to change culture. Yes. And then it seems like everybody backs off from that and says, well, that's too hard in a way that they won't back off of creating fusion or going to Mars. That they just say that's not possible. It's human nature and things like that. Even when counterexamples show that's not the case. Yes. And so in your case, I mean, as I said, I think the biggest thing that you offer is integrity and credibility and based on knowledge and experience and I just won't back away from changing culture because if we don't change culture, if I could snap my fingers and put all pollution and all you know deforestation, everything back yeah. to pre-industrial levels, but we kept our our culture, we'd be back here again. Yes, no, you're no, you're you're right. And and look, um, first of all, for all the trolls out there, you will have a feast finding all the inconsistencies in my life, and I welcome you to it. Um, but I do try to do my very best uh, to live with integrity and to really make conscious decisions, right? And and that's you know that's something that I hope we can get to because ultimately, you know, we could use up the entire planet and and the national park, if you like, right, is the first example of a society being able to say no, we're not going to touch this. There's no reason why I'm going to go in Yellowstone and build a geothermal power plant, um, but 
you know, we decided not to do that. And, you know, if you think about it, that's remarkable. Any of these type of achievements, and I'm not, you know, a historian, but we could probably roll back and find a lot of them, right, that just show how remarkable it was. But it required leadership of individuals. I'm quite frankly, it wasn't quite, I don't think it was a democratic process. You know, it was just someone saying, I want that. I'm educated enough. I'm a, I have the power and I, I will make this happen, right? For example, in the national parks. And then most people, hopefully most people then recognize the benefit of it and enjoy it and then take pride of it and grow up with it and get accustomed to it, right? So overall, you know, remember we have a very short history. We have blown through, you know, a couple hundred million years of unique geological formations and climate on Earth to produce coal and gasoline in about like, what, 100, 150 years? Uh, that's really how long this discussion has been going on. Yes, we have an impact on climate since we started deforesting, deforesting Europe and then North America. Um, there's just some ideas that this even happened five, 6,000 years ago, which is the reason why the climate has been so stable because there's been a forcing effect by deforestation. All of those who don't know about this, read up on it. It's very fascinating. The science is not completely conclusive. But the point is, let's roll forward and say, okay, let's call it, you know, let's call it 1850 or some, pick some number. Uh, when, when it got really crazy, right? When the exponential growth happened. Uh, you know, humankind, human culture, generations, I mean, you know, it's nothing much has happened, right? Uh, it's, you know, and, and, you know, we have to look at the process that is much, much longer in cultural change and, and in generational change to catch up with that, right? Um, you know, technology has outleaped our entire, you know, intellectual, emotional, you know, response to the impacts of it on the world. Um, so that you know, I mean, I think that's self-evident. I don't tell any, anyone anything new here, but that's part of our problem. Like we didn't have enough time. The fuse, you know, reached a bomb way before you know before anyone could say you know what's at the end of that line, right? And so yeah, it's going to be a challenge. It's going to be, um, you know, I don't. I think it's going to have an unhappy. It's not going to have an happy ending. Okay, and uh, I hope we kind of pull ourselves together, together, and then out of what's left, build something. You know, I mean, the boreal forest will burn. California will burn to the ground until there's nothing left. It's not possible any other way because the temperature we have in California does not sustain the kind of forest we have right now here. So it will burn. It must burn. Nature will convert this to the type of landscape where it usually grows the kind of things that grow here. So it will not burn. And, and the question is, you know, how long does it take when you fully grapple with this? And, you know, then, of course, you have the baseline starts shifting. People are happy to see one bird. When you used to see 10,000, you know, creating a cloud of birds in the sky, they're happy with one monarch when they forgot that driving over Donna Pass would be so thick with monarchs traveling that they had to stop the car because they couldn't see anything anymore because it was all, all orange wings in front of them. You know, that will also happen. And I don't have an answer for anyone out there except for recognize it, love yourself, love everyone else, and work on everything and, and do your very best, you know, because that's really all you can do. Because you only have one life either, Josh. You don't want to blow that either by being full of disappointment, resentment, and anger, and, and frustration. You know, you didn't deserve that either. You can't be the good person and the sad person at the same point, same time. That's not fair. So, uh, you know, I don't mean like ignore, but be conscious, be aware, fight it, battle it, but continue to love what you see around yourself because otherwise it makes you really, really depressed and angry. So with regard to the... Uh, catastrophe. I mean, obviously, I think everyone knows that people are dying by the millions already. So, you know, for them, it's already happened and it's been happening for some time. I I guess I, I usually put it in terms of this one. I could pick any number of reports that I've read, but this one was from Cornell Research that they said that by 2100, 
There could be a billion climate refugees or there could be two billion climate refugees. And I think for most of us, those are big numbers. Sounds pretty bad. Not much difference between them. But from another perspective, that's still a billion people. The difference between one billion and two billion climate refugees. And of course, if there are billions of climate refugees, that's going to mean wars over resources and borders can't protect against billions. So that's the tip of the iceberg. But the difference of, of a billion people suffering or not on that order depends on what we, you and I, all of us do today here now. And so even if I can't stop everything, I guess my takeaway is that there are, when people don't know about an issue, they tend to see things in black and white. They don't see the nuances. And I see that there's levels of disaster. There there could be at one end extinction. At the other end, there could be, I don't know what's it. There is no peace on earth. Uh, people are already dying. So we, there's already disaster. But does that mean it has to be the worst of all possible disasters? Well, obviously not. And to me, what gives me meaning and purpose is, and the way I value my life, what gives me not just happiness, which might be fleeting in the moment, but like what my life is about. I guess I'd like to say I don't evaluate it based on things outside of my control, although I do to some degree, but it's much more have I done what I can relative to my, to my potential on the things that matter to me most. And if I'm the only one working on these things, I've learned, I mean, personal leadership, learning my own emotional system and my own emotional state, one of the big outcomes of that is to, if, yeah, being frustrated doesn't really work very well. Being angry doesn't really work very well. But I have the, I've learned through leadership classes from Columbia Business School and more that I can bring about the emotional state that I want. I mean, a lot of what I do is feeling frustrated, feeling annoyed, feeling exasperated, things like that. But then seeing that the magnitude of that emotion and learning ways to redirect it to working on what I see as the best I can do. And I find myself unable to do that if I just capitulate. Well, in my terms, to just capitulate. I could, I could stop going up and down the stairs any day I want just by connecting my apartment back to the grid and have all the power that I want and many more, much more. That one I can't seem to get myself around redirect like that suppressing and denying of my connection to others. Maybe it's a choice of mine. Maybe if I worked at it enough, I could feel just as happy doing that. But I feel like what I, how I interact with others is just so much greater than my comfort and convenience. And I, I don't want to denigrate like the joys of, of getting in a plane and getting off in Singapore. I've done those things. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm sharing with you some stuff I've I've written, but haven't really said out loud. Yeah, I don't, does it? Do I sound like I'm? You're someone whose opinion I value more than most because of your experience and and in personal doing things. Even if it's not your choice, does it seem like it's crazy to give it a shot to try to change culture to be one of the instigators of of trying to change culture on a national and even global scale? No, uh, no. I tell you, I tell you what else is going to do with your life. I mean, you know, I mean, we can talk about the meaning of life here if you like, but uh, you know, we probably uh, don't have the time. And I, I just looked at the clock, and we spent a good hour. Uh, but uh, let's um, let let me answer this uh, in two ways. I think it's extremely important for people to get really angry. I think this famous saying, like, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. 
is it exactly true? It doesn't, you know, you don't have to be outraged for no reason, right? You just have to be, don't be outraged just because the coffee was cold at the Starbucks. That's silly, right? Um, but, you know, if you're not, ang ang anger is good. Anger and outrage is good as long as you direct it, you know, at the, at the, at the matter of, of the subject, right? And in, in, in your brain, in your mind. And then, then you calm down and say, okay, I know motivated, right? I'm not, oh, now I'm aware and I'm motivated because awareness is not enough. You have to have motivation, right? You have to be willing to change something. And that often, you know, anger is one or whatever you want to call it, rage, emotional turmoil, you know, getting riled up. Those are all critical things to get you to do something, right? Otherwise you're like, oh, I understand the problem, but oh, well, you know, uh, I guess I don't feel so bad about it. It doesn't make me crazy. I can still, still sleep at night. If you can't sleep at night, you probably will do something about things. Then the question is, is that time well spent? I would say yes, because, you know, if you really start thinking about what the meaning of life is and this, you know, it's a long discussion uh, one could have. Um, you know, for my part, uh, you know, the meaning of life, uh, other than the meaning of life is simply the propagation of life, which is kind of sad, uh, but for some people, but I think it's a pretty important way to think about it. For me, the meaning of life is the protection, you know, it's conservation and expansion of the natural uh, of world and, and the cultural world of man. So there's no other meaning in my view. And if you are doing that, Josh, by trying to, you know, be aware, change your culture to expand those things or protect them, then your life is meaning in my book, right? In my in my view. So that's that's why I think uh, yeah, it's a very valuable, that's the only but I mean there are other ways to do it, right? Even being kind to people is, you know, make this world better. But yeah, I think it's 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 something worth trying and something to try and and you know I want to just characterize two different poles. You know, that's the one idea like, oh we'll just make water or sea water and we'll you know, in re-engineer the planet, we'll put particles up in space and 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 shed the sun and all this stuff, right? And it's just nutty. It's just nutty, right? I mean, you know, uh, because it's like, you know, you don't even know how the system as it is works. And now you're telling me that you're going to add all these knobs and levers. And the other one is to say, you know, screw it. We're all going to go to hell. You know, planet, you know, we're going to be apocalypse, you know, and apocalypse and let me just do my stuff. What's really funny about this, guys, they're very often on podcasts, right? At that point, they don't suddenly get, uh, you know, uh, an adrenaline shock or, or sweat on their bullets and uh, on their head, forehead and, and start shaking. Because if they really thought, really believed that the earth is going to go to hell, which means they're going to go down too with it and all the families, everything they ever propagated, they would behave emotionally very differently on that podcast than the little statements they make. When they make these statements for 99% of the people, it's all bullshit. They don't mean it. They don't recognize it. this. It's just empty talk. It's just empty talk. Because if you really thought the world is going to end in 50 years, I don't think you'll be sitting on your chair anymore like you're doing right now and talking to the podcast. You'll be standing upright and, and freaking out because, you know, let's say you're 25 years old. That means you will die, right, prematurely. And most people on both sides, they're not sincere. The ones that say, ah, put, put some particles in the earth and we're going to inject some steam in, in the Pacific Ocean to create artificial clouds and do this and this. That's all completely ridiculous, you know, Flash Gordon science fiction. And the other guys that say, oh, you know, we're going to die in 30 years, you know, who cares? You know, it's just what it is. You know, they're not recognizing the problem. They're not, you know, both are denying it. Both sides are completely, you know, ridiculous in their, in their point of views. And, but so, and to go back to you, and I think hopefully, um, Josh, I have to head back to my next thing, but I want to get this idea that you probably put out there. What I think it's going to look like, 
it's going to look like 99 Luftballons, uh, 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 Luftballons, you know, the famous Nina songs. Mm-hmm. It was a perfect world until they all rose up to the sky and they shut them down and they caused a nuclear war. Uh, but in the end, the protagonist, in this case, the singer, is still alive. She's still around. There's still one balloon left. So it wasn't that it all ended, but what was left was pretty sad to compare to what was before. And that's, I said, that's, I think, what will happen to Earth. It's gonna. It's, it's not gonna be the utopia where you know everything is gonna be perfect. We we'll live on Mars and we come down to Earth just to fly fish. Um, and it's not gonna be that this idea that everything is gonna go up with this big nuclear whatever and wipe out like a one lot heat heat wave and everything goes silence. I think it's gonna be sadly in the middle where everyone will just say at the end, hundred thousand, ten thousand years from now, from now, what a waste, what a failure. How could we, how did we just blow this one? And it was so, so easy. And and I'll just be happy. They'll cherry every monarch, they'll cherry, cherry every last little orchid, whatever's left. Have, you know, but that's I think what's what, what lies ahead as a future. There'll be a, such a low baseline. It's almost a little bit like, you know, that that Pixar movie with the little robot that found like one plant Wally. in the trash. Wally, he finds one plant in the trash. For him, that's nature, right? And sadly, I think we'll come to a point where we're going to be marvel at two birds in the sky when there should be 20,000 in the sky. That's my prediction. And, and not my prediction, that's my expectation. And so the best I can do is make sure that outcome is as much on the positive side as possible. And that's that's where I, where I attack the problem. I'm, like, I'm just going to do what I can. And I'm not going to be on either side of those camps because they're just deniers of one of the other sides. I'm just going to do, do, do what I can to minimize the impact and make this outcome as positive as possible. Well, you have to go. So I'm going to, and everything, I, what you say is so rich and so well thought out. I, I deeply value it. I'm going to, I'm going to comment one thing, which is maybe the biggest thing. Cause when I asked you the question, I wasn't thinking about it when I was asking it. When you answered it, it made me think about when I asked, it just seemed like a waste of time. And you said, no, I'm glad. That motivates me. That gives me, uh, even if no one else does it, I'm still going to keep doing it. And my mom is the opposite. She's like, you're wasting your time, Josh. Don't bother. And I can say this because she doesn't listen to the podcast. She reads my blog, but not listen to the podcast. And uh, yeah, it's I. we got to do our best and uh, and not give in. Yes, and no, I agree. As tempting and as alluring as and seductive as it is, oh. it's so easy to just say, "Well, I can't do anything." Yes, it's all over. You know, it's in the Matrix, the movie Matrix, when he bites into the steak, the virtual steak, and enjoys the juice, right? And he basically forsakes his friends and the hardship of living, or whatever the ship was called, the Nemo, underneath uh, this robotic world. Uh, you know, we know about it. It's it's an apple in the Bible. And the Garden Eden, or wherever that originally came from, probably not even from Christianity, that image um, doesn't matter. But it's 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 something that's true, and it's yeah, it's the warming hut for the Marines in in Darwin, where they're training in San Diego, right? You can go in there, and it's going to be nice and warm. Um, yeah, this is temptation, if you want to call it, or uh, you know, just the reality. But the point is, you need to even love the person who takes the apple bite, or you need to you still cherish the Marine that goes in the warming hut. The moment you make fault people for it, I don't mean not to hold people accountable and ask them to do better, but the moment you start looking down at people or, or not loving them, that's that's when you're losing it. 
because ultimately that's the only thing that's going to help hold it together if you just appreciate um you know that everyone is trying probably trying their best you know and that's that's what i try to do i'm not trying to fault anyone i'm just trying to you know do my best and, and help people elevate their, themselves if i can i feel like this is the beginning of new conversation and we'll have to save that for another time arnold leitner thank you very much thank you josh have a wonderful day how many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.